Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to All In Gospel. Uh, I'm Sean, and we're going to be doing Ephesians 2 tonight, and I am thrilled to go through it. But, you know, before we start, let's just take a moment and have a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, I just pray that uh, you bless each and every person that's uh, here tonight, taking their evening to study your word. Um, and Lord, I just pray that uh, you bless those in our country that are bravely uh, trying to fight a pandemic. And Lord, we just pray for our doctors and our nurses, give them courage, keep them healthy. Uh, bless the, the, the people that are doing uh, services and, and continuing to serve through this whole thing, Lord. Uh, may you be with them and uh, just give our country peace and grace. And may we learn to look to you for our salvation, um, not necessarily to our government or anybody else, but we just, we look to you, Lord. And all of this drives us to just desire and hope for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in Ephesians 2. If you have not listened to All in Gospel before, it's really simple. We're going through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. Um, so my goal is to tell you what Ephesians 2 says and to let the Bible speak for itself uh, and to not really bring things to the table unless they're, uh, they're elsewhere in the Bible or they have direct relevance to what's going on in that passage that we're talking about. So let's do it. If you have Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians 2. If you have devices, you can click there. Uh, but we're going to start there. Uh, there is already a stream on Ephesians 1 where Paul introduces this letter to the Ephesians. And this letter is amazing. Uh, it is a uh, letter for the ages, and it's where Paul is sitting in a prison cell, and he explains that God has a plan, which is an amazing degree of hope that Paul has at this kind of moment. And he says that the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be heirs in that plan together. They're going to be united. And that that church that God's going to build out of the Jews and Gentiles together is going to be example of God's power. And Jesus' resurrection is the first example of God's power, but the church that's going to be built is going to be something else. Chapter 2, we're going to get into the implications of Jesus' resurrection. What does it mean in our life, and how does that change how we do things and how we should interact with each other? Um, and it reminds you of a great Big Daddy Weave song. So if you're into Big Daddy Weave, this chapter is one of their songs. So um, you may even hear that song going through your head a few times as we go through the chapter. So how do you explain, and here's the other piece, and I think this is kind of a neat thing. In Ephesians, Paul's not correcting the church of Ephesus. He's giving them language to talk about their faith to other people and to talk about their faith with each other and to resolve maybe this, this idea that Jews and Gentiles are somehow separate, that in Christ they're not. Uh, so he's giving a rationale and a logic for that, but he's doing it and he's modeling it. And he's, it's a veteran Christian that has been bold in his faith for years, showing all of us, you know, newbie Christians, how to be talking about our faith and how to be doing it. So here it is, verse 1. Uh, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of power of the air 
the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we are all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh of the, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. So Paul's leading off, and, and again, he's just talking about this wonderful walk of faith as a Christian that we have, and he leads off this kind of discourse saying, the one who made you alive, um, and he who made you alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. He reminds all the Christians, you were once dead in your transgressions. And I think it's important as Christians that we remember our source and where we came from. And that doesn't mean that as Christians we wallow in our past life or we bemoan our sins and our troubles from that life all of the time, but we keep it present that we were once dead in our sin and we were sinners and it keeps a certain spiritual humility about who we are and that's going to become important as we go through this. Spiritually dead is not the same thing as physically dead. That's a difficult theological concept for all the theologians. And if you go into theology, you will wrestle with this idea with the theologians, but it's not really a difficult idea for those that are believers, right? So it's not necessarily a spiritually difficult concept. There's alive people spiritually, and there's people that are not alive spiritually. There's people that love their lives, and there's people that are just walking through their lives like zombies, right? And there's a difference between the two. And that's not something that's hard to express when you're amongst and, and, and talking with other people that are alive in their faith. So physically, we're born and then we die, right? Spiritually, we're dead and then we come alive. So you can go as far into your life as you want and until there's a point where you're born again spiritually, you kind of walk through life with blinders on. And here's another way to look at that. Dead people don't sit around and consider why they're dead. They're just dead. So dead people aren't aware of a spiritual life. They don't consider God and their relationship to God. They're not thinking about eternity and where their soul goes after they're physically dying. They're dead. So to hold them accountable for that kind of spiritual thinking while they're yet dead is tough to do. Spiritually speaking, it's easy when you're alive to recognize dead people, just like it is physically. I know that person's dead because there's nothing going on there, right? So spiritually speaking, it, it doesn't go to two ways and dead people don't necessarily have the ability to see or recognize alive people. And this is the essential challenge of a spiritual walk, right? The exception of course is Adam and Eve, who they were as humans born alive, intimate with God and walking and talking with God in the garden. And then they ate the tree and boom, now they're dead in the spirit. So those are the only humans that start out life alive and then they die. Um, but it's a tragedy, right? In Genesis, that's the great failing of human, humanity. And Paul's kind of bringing us back to that idea that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we're made alive. And for his listeners in Ephesus who have experienced life, this isn't, this isn't a challenging concept, which is why Paul doesn't exactly go into explaining it. He leaves it to the theologians. God then becomes the source of real spiritual life. We as dead people don't resuscitate ourselves. We need something with life to bring life to us and to help us be that vessel of life. So the goal of Adam and Eve and, and the fall of humanity, the goal of God is to restore our state where we can walk and talk with God. And there's a benefit to walking and talking with God. There's a life to it and it's wonderful. And the path, the progressive revelation leads right to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus brings us that life to live with in him. So sins and trespasses, let's get into this. The Greek uh, trespass is actually the idea of trespassing or wandering. Like you walk onto someone else's property is how we still translate that today. God's will then um, is that we don't necessarily sin against or trespass against other people where we walk onto their territory, right? Sin is where we... Um, are essentially ignoring what God said right and wrong was. So sin is a, trust, a, a sin against God, and we trespass against other people. In the Greek, the sin means to miss the target. It's actually the idea of when Greeks would throw spears and they would screw up, they would call that, you know, they would, they would sin. They would miss the target or they would fail in their purpose, which implies that there's a purpose. The purpose is to hit the target. So when you're walking through life and you're just never hitting the target, it may be because you're not aiming at the right thing. So verse two, even though in, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Oof. So Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he's talking to believers. Remember, you were sinners too. You used to walk according to the course of the world. Walk in the Greek is parapetio, which means to tread around randomly to just let life pass, right? So it's not dead in that you were some evil guy painting your you know, eyelids black and, and scaring people. It's that you're just walking through life with no purpose, no meaning, and no intent. You could even be somebody who goes to a church and still fit the description that Paul's talking around here. You're walking around according to the course of the world, right? The course there is an interesting Greek word, aeon or aeon. It's an age or a fad or a temporary period of time, right? So you're walking, you're walking according to your age or whatever your age tells you to do. Everybody's doing it around you, so you do it too. And many people, even people who call themselves Christians, do exactly this. I do this all the time, right? I try to pay attention to the fashions so I don't look like I'm out of step with the rest of the world. And that's just the beginning, right? To live without an awareness of God is then to live with an awareness of the people around you all the time, the culture you're in, your workplace, your church culture, um, or, or any other kind of culture. And Christians remember a time when they walked like that, where just whichever way the world was taking them, they would go that way too, right? Of the course of this world then is this idea that as zombies, we just follow things. And if you've seen good zombie movies, they hear flesh and they just start moving towards it. And in the same way, when the movie industry tells us there's a new movie coming out, like zombies, we just walk towards it. We walk in the course of this world. Whatever the world tells us to be excited about, we just do it. We're told to vote this way, we just vote that way, right? We're told to eat this, we eat that. We're told to do this, we do that. We're told to stay at home during a quarantine, we do it. And that's all there is to our lives, is just following along to that course. Paul goes on the sentence, though, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's an interesting way to describe Satan or the enemy or the devil. Um, the prince, of course, is not the final authority. The king is. So he's not giving that. Uh, but, he, but he is saying that there's a prince. There's A prince does have power and does have some uh, authority over this domain that the king gives him, right? So there's a, since the fall of Adam and Eve, Satan was given this authority, either by God or by Adam and Eve. But according to this world, he kind of runs things for all the zombies. He's the zombie prince. And he tells the zombies which way to go and how to get there and what to do, right? First, or Colossians 1.13, 
uh, calls this prince of the power of the air, uh, the power of darkness and evil, right? Is our key enemy in, in Ephesians 6.12 is where we'll see this, this epistle is going to go. And everybody conforms to this prince of the air uh, or you're not aligned with their spiritual realm, right? So there's this aimlessness, this course of the world that's actually evil or powered by an evil entity. And that's not to say there's little demons on everybody's back. They don't need to be on everybody's back. All they do is get everyone to sign up for this get in line, do as you're told, get excited about what you're supposed to be. I mean, even rebellion, according to the world, is to dress a certain way and listen to a certain kind of music, and then you're a rebel. But all the rebels look the same, and they all do the same things. So they're still following the course of the world. That's not real rebellion. As one of my favorite pastors, Jeff Sowald Medicine, says, if you really want to be a rebel, be a Christian. Get out of the course of the world and listen to the king, right? So, and then where it's all headed the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, right? So you can be children of God or you can be children of disobedience. You can obey God or you can disobey God. And Paul's setting up kind of a dichotomy there. That's where it's all headed. You ignore, you rewrite, you deny, and you ultimately disobey what God says to do with your life. Okay, and, and, and we've all been that way. And again, I keep that in context. We're not talking about us versus them. We're talking about us. God's plan for our lives in Ephesians 3.20 is the same verb where it works in our life as it is here, right? There's a working in our life, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And when we get to Ephesians 3.20, it's the same Greek word, right? Either the prince of the air is working in your life or the, or the God of the universe is working in your life. And either one is a work to create something or to make something new. And we all respond to guidance. We're humans. We worship something. And if you don't think you worship anything, let's look at your wallet. Let's look at where you spend your time on your calendar. And I'll tell you what you worship. All of this is to get people to focus on the air versus the reality of the God of the universe and what he wants for your life. The whole course of this world is to distract and get people to believe fantasy over reality, right? To trust in yourself versus trusting in God or for entertainment to be more important than what God's doing at, over at the church, right? So if, if you're going to a church and there's nothing happening, then maybe it's kind of a church that follows the course of the world. But if you're with a body of believers where they're alive, they're not zombies, that's more exciting than anything on a TV. And that's something to pray about. If in your spiritual life you don't see the church as where the action is, then you're probably in a dead church, right? At least according to Paul right? Because Paul says later in this epistle, Ephesians 6:12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. That's an epic battle, people. So if you're going to go against that kind of battle, why would a TV show make any difference when this is what you have in front of you? And it's not to be terrified by it, because he that's in us is stronger than he that's in the world. And there's a good fight to be had when you're dealing with this. But the fight is essentially, if you're going to not be in the course of the world, you're going to find people who don't like how you walk and they don't like how you do things. And we'll get more into that in this letter. Verse three, among whom also we once concluded ourselves, conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like others. Here's the thing. 
we all once conducted is not blaming everything on the prince of the air. There's two things. There's the course of the world, which is from the outside of our souls, but there's also our own souls, right? We, by nature, are in defiance against God. Because here's the thing, when you're born, all you think about is yourself. And when you're two or three years old, all you think about is yourself. When you're five or six, maybe you think about other people because they make yourself happy, right? As you get to be a teenager, then you go back to being one years old again and all you do is think about yourself. And as you grow into an adult, the key distinction of a mature adult is someone who puts others before themselves, right? But by nature, we're all born that way. We all think of ourselves and think of our needs of, our, of, of what we want in our life. Fulfilling the desires, lust of the flesh. Lust here is not just sexual. It's about anything you want. It's about food. It's about sleep. It's about my weekends, my me time. It's all the things that we want in the flesh. And in life, we like to fulfill these things. And, 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 and before we make them too horrible, on the surface, this isn't a bad thing to pursue the things that your flesh wants, right? I like sugar a lot, especially on a glazed donut. And today I had four of them. But that doesn't mean that it was good for me to have all those donuts. It was a, a deal on, for, it's a long story. They had a really good deal on donuts because the restaurant's trying to stay in business. So we were trying to help out a local business. Um, sugar, when eaten, is amazing. But it doesn't mean that it's good for you. It doesn't mean that that's what you lust for in life and that you're constantly pursuing those things that are kind of empty, empty of nourishment, empty of meaning, empty of reality. In the same way, a good Marvel movie can be an epic experience. It can be fun for two hours, but then you leave the theater and it's empty. It doesn't have any life to it. It's not real. It's fantasy over reality. So all things are not necessarily good things. And too much of things that don't have any spiritual significance actually lead us to ourselves all the time. Here's an interesting phrase in this passage. It says, and of the mind. The of the mind thing there is a Greek word, Greek, Greek word dianoia, which is really close to another word. And we'll get there. But dianoia means to understand or to imagine something. They're, they're the same word. And if you think about it, understanding and imagination in the Greek word was one word. But to us, it's two very separate ideas that understanding has kind of an elevated value to it and imagination is more of a playful kind of thing. But the Greeks, I think, understood a really key psychological concept. Anything we understand, we came to that understanding through our imagination. Our mind makes our own realities and our understanding of the world around us comes on how we imagine things, right? Imagine, for, ex for example, your knowledge of the atom. That doesn't come from any kind of physical, tangible experience. It didn't come through your senses. It came through your imagination. Someone shared with you the idea of an atom and showed you a little cartoon, cartoon drawing of an atom, and then you think you understand what an atom is, right? And there's so many concepts in our mind that come to us through that kind of imagination portal or pathway. Dianoia is understanding something with the help of our imagination, whether or not it's true, right? So it's very hard in our culture to be wrong about something because we have dianoia as a culture, right? We think we understand things with our mind, but they're not necessarily true, or as Paul's saying, they lead us astray. Similar to dianoia is paranoia, which is a word we actually use in the English. Paranoia is very similar. It's a conflict between reality or truth 
and your imagined understanding, right? So there's a, a challenge there where you feel paranoid because you think you know that the gremlins are out to get you and you're paranoid about it. Dianoia, there's no conflict. You don't get anxious about it. It's much more subtle and much more hidden. Paranoia becomes something that you may actually go to a counselor and get help for. Dianoia, you're so self-deluded, you just sit there because in your mind you think you've got it figured out. But your mind is in direct disagreement with reality. There's just no challenge there. There's no para, right? So we can imagine what we think God wants of us and then start to come up with an imagined understanding of God. And we can even call him God and say we understand him and call ourselves Christians. But at the end of the day, we have dianoia. We're not worshiping the God of the Bible because the Bible clearly says, this is right, this is wrong, walk in my ways. So when we ignore what the word of God says and we just come up with kind of our idea of Christianity or God from ourselves, we're in dangerously thin ground according to Paul, right? Dianoia, to be ruled by your own imagination and begin to understand the world in a way that's not connected to objective truth and reality. You have your own mind. You've made up your mind. By nature, Paul's saying we're all born that way. It's not just behavior, it's nature, right? So when you hear people say that I was born this way, the Bible doesn't disagree with them. They were born that way, but that doesn't mean that they should be that way. Paul's not arguing that because we were born this way, we should stay that way. He's arguing that we maybe we're all born in a certain way that's in defiance against God, but we have to reconcile that somehow. This is bad news for a Saturday night. I might be out of compliance with what God wants, and I might even at the end of this verse be a children, a child of wrath instead of a child of God, right? That child of wrath is eventually where this all goes. And think about it. How many times are we told to pursue things and then we get there and we find out there's nothing there, right? Pursue your doctorate, right? Become a professor, right? Go and, and write a book, uh, be a championship athlete, right? Get to the top of your profession and be the boss, run your own company, do all these things that from our high school guidance counselors, they told us these things were good. And they're not bad. They're all good things. But they're empty spiritually. They have no value spiritually. And as a country, we're recognizing with all of our success and wealth and prosperity that it can be snapped away from us in a minute. There's no value to it, right? And if a quarantined epidemic doesn't teach us that lesson, we're thick. We're blinded. We're dead in our own understanding, in our minds. We're not clear, right? One of the highest depression rates you'll find amongst affluent people right? Highest suicide rates you find amongst uh, famous people, right? Highest drug overdose rates, right? Are all over the place, but they come from people that have eventually come to what's kind of a rational conclusion. Outside of God, there's no purpose or meaning to this life. And that's an emptying thought. It's a thought of death and it should worry us. We should be afflicted by that thought, right? Unless, unless there's something, something in the reality of the world that we can look to and lean to besides our own minds, besides the course of this world. And I love how Paul puts this, right? Because there's an alternative to living like a corpse. And that is the next Marvel phase four movie. And you can look forward to that and watch the trailers and go for it. Why are you shaking your head? Okay. It's not movies, and I shouldn't use sarcasm, I'm sorry. It's not movies at all. It's the next election. 
if only we can get our guy elected or our girl elected in the next election, that will make the world right and we will be happy. So we can say, but election, right? And we can live for that and look forward to it because everything else is meaningless and empty. So let's put all of our hope into some human being that we've elevated to the state of, you know, saint election person and we'll go for that person. Or maybe if only we could have one day where there are no bad drivers on the road and everyone just obeyed our rules of the road, but better rules of the road. And we start making better driver's ed classes. And we put our whole life into these things where we make other people act the way we think we should make them act. That's our salvation. But that's sarcasm too. So, and it's dianoia. We've convinced ourselves, we've imagined with our understanding that if these things happen, then we have hope. But that's not hope either. In fact, it's fake hope. It's not connected to reality because it's never worked, right? Humans will fail. Doesn't matter how we do it or who's in charge or uh, what movie is going to come out next. The movie will end in two hours. And I want something that's eternal. Or if you don't want something that's internal, you're probably just dead. You're not even woken up to thinking about it because what does happen to you after you die, right? And it would be a terrifying thought to think that it's nothing. And frankly, we're not wired that way, right? But it doesn't say, but Marvel movie, but human, but next election. It doesn't say, but our next experience. It doesn't say our next trip. It doesn't say our next new toy, our new job, our new spouse. It actually says in verse four, but God. And this is my wife's favorite two words in the Bible. You have this horrible state of humanity but God, but God steps in. Isn't it nice that God is, verse four, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Past tense, not on our own power, right? What a powerful transition Paul makes. In fact, this is some of the best writing. William MacDonald says this is the most significant, eloquent, and inspire, trans, inspiring transition in all of literature. We go from zombie land to but God. And that's how Paul sets up your options. And you, it, is it any wonder that Paul was a great evangelist, right? Here's the alternative to just doing what we're told by the world, to thinking and being emotional whenever the world gets emotional and getting riled up whenever they get right. Instead of doing that, and blindly followed it, we can instead look to the Lord God of the universe and put our trust in him and know that God's on the throne. And that's just an amazing place to be. Part of this is because, and, and I think part of, notice the agency of this, it is God who does the saving, right? It's not us. We do nothing. Dead people don't save themselves. We don't resuscitate ourselves. We are dead in our sin, which means we have no ability to do anything about that horrible situation from verses one through three. That's good news. We don't provide to God some reason to love us. We don't provide to God some prayer that makes God love us. He loves us before we ever even look to him. He loves us before we have an eternal perspective, before we start to ask eternal questions. He asks us to come into his presence and fellowship with him. It's all he wanted from Adam and Eve, right? 
There's this idea of walking with God, and we'll come back to that. But we, like dead zombie things, we need life with Christ given to us by grace because we don't have any other option. We're desperate. We come to God hat in hand saying, please. And God says, absolutely. I've been waiting for you to say that. All we really do is accept a gift, right? If that, I think Paul's imagery here is more like we're get, literally getting resuscitated and somebody else is pumping on our chest. And in that sense, you don't receive the pumps on your chest. The life is poured into you without your work being done, right? It's really simple. It's not a massive theological concept. John 5, 24, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has passed from death to life. If you've heard the word of God and you believe in the one who's in, in Jesus Christ as God's child, you're saved. You now have the eternal perspective. That doesn't mean you're going to necessarily do anything with it. We'll get to that in the next chapter. But it does mean that you have life in you. There's a heartbeat, right? You might still be on the operating table, but there's something there that can be resuscitated. So there has to be this shift at some point, according to Paul, where we stop trying to defend ourselves and our choices in our own mind, and we just live and believe what God says. God says it, so I believe it. So Paul contrasts those two things and separates the two ideas with the two words, but God. But God snatches us out of the miry clay and he brings us to a place where we're living. Nice. And verse six, and then he raises us up together. Huh, he's going to parent us, right? The idea of raising us up there is this idea of elevating through nurturing to raise up a child. He's going to actually see it through with us. And he made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow. He's going to pick us up and plop us down next to his son in heavenly places, right? The prince of the air doesn't like this idea because that's the same place that he got kicked out of, right? His defiance separated him from God and God invites all of us humans to be reconciled with him, right? So where being dead leads to more death, being alive leads to more life. There's a blessing in doing this. We together sit with Jesus. Notice that Paul's not talking individually here. There's really no maverick Christians. We, he raises us up together. Paul's saying that as a church, as a body, we're raised together. That shows the essential importance of us being together. And that's hard to do as we're video streaming, but connecting, worshiping the Lord together, praying together, doing the word together. It's been a joy to see how many churches have done really creative things in the middle of a quarantine to connect with each other. It's essential that we who have been raised up together and we get to be sitting together in the heavenly places of Jesus Christ. I get to sit next to other Christians as that happens. So together is likely Paul's bringing together, in chapter one he talked about the Jews and the Gentiles. So likely when he talks about together here, he's, he's bringing those people together. Spiritually speaking, there's a bigger implication here that together is the Christians from all over the world, Christians in local communities gathering together and being together. You can go the course of the world or you can gather as Christians and go the course of God, go the way that God picks. Notice in verse two that we walked around as dead people and notice that in this verse we sit in the presence of God. So we don't do things, God does things with us and through us. I think that's incredible. 
Because sometimes people say, I want to serve you, Lord. And then they instantly start looking for how to run around and do things, right? They're frantic to connect and do good works. But that's not the path to doing good works. The path to doing good works is to sit, to stop going places unless God tells you to go places. Abide with God and be with him more. Verse 7, I love this, that in ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and in his kindness towards Christ Jesus. That means as much as I'm excited about the life that God's given me, as much as I have joy in what I see with other believers around me, as much as we get to see God at work, verse 7 says in the ages of to come, he's going to show us exceeding riches. Like it gets better. Ask any veteran believer. It's way better to be in Christ 20 years down the road than the first year you got saved. It just gets better and it gets more exciting. And you get to start seeing other people walk in this path towards God. The exceeding riches of God are going to continue to be revealed to us in ages to come. That's a promise that it gets even better than this age or period of time that we're in. If God keeps revealing stuff to us, we keep learning about God. And that's eternity right? For by grace, you've been saved through faith. Just in case you didn't get it in the previous verses, God does grace and that's how we get saved. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So Paul, I love, just summarizes it in one nice little sentence. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. Don't think you saved yourself. You were not wise. You were not clever. You did not figure out the magic mystery. You just got God in your life and by grace he saved you, right? Not because of anything you did. In fact, it's probably despite everything you did. At least it was for me. Paul cuts off the thought that our actions mean anything and he uses extremely directive language in verse 8 to just make sure that's clear. It's a gift from God. Works are going to be important later in the chapter, but Paul's establishing that foundationally speaking. Our only action of note is when we stop fighting God. The only thing we can do right is to sit still and not keep going the course of the world, right? And we accept the gift. Thank you for the gift. Verse 9, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Saying the same kind of thing with a slightly different twist. Even though you have been saved by God, people then can start doing things, works, and then they can start kind of boasting about how much they've done for God. The most mature, veteran, amazing believers that we come to respect are some of the most humble people in the world. They're not doing anything special. They're not trying to impress you. They're just preaching the word of God simply and directly the best they can, or they're just bringing people food, or they're just cleaning up after we have an assembly or a fellowship gathering, right? They're just the people doing what they can do to help make things happen so God's word goes forth. Nothing to boast about. We're just, we were dead in our transgressions. There's nothing to boast about. On our own power, we didn't do anything right or well or good. So, oh well, forget about that. I'm just going to serve God and abide in him, right? We're called to abide. Deuteronomy 5.33, Psalm 61.7. 
1 Corinthians 7.24. We're called to be comforted, John 14.15. We're called to be in a relationship with God, and out of that comes a desire for us to do the right thing and to be holy, Leviticus 27, 1 Peter 1.16. Why do we want to be holy? Because God's holy. Why do we like people who are our mentors? Because we want to be more like them. And when God starts to do things in your life, the desire is to be more like God, right? Because we emulate the people we look up to, right? And we're just like that. We're humans. Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord, right? In case you don't get it, the first thing you do when God saves you is you start to get to know him. You just hang out with him right? You're not in a rush to go and do things and to do works so that you can boast about them, right? That's a perpetual temptation even after God is working in our life to start to think that God's working in my life and if I do more stuff, suddenly God will love me more. I'll be a better person. Odds are the, the higher or the more prominent you are in God's church, the more the temptation to take credit for it gets to be powerful, right? The works that we do, even after trying to follow God, are things that are all good things, right? We go to church, right? We serve at the church. We do baptisms. We get membership. We form allegiances. We tithe our money. We give charity to things. We're neighborly to our neighbors. We share tracts with them. We share the good word. We live according to God's law. But none of that saved us in the first place. And none of it will more save us later on, right? That's a really tough idea for some people to get a hold of. There's no religious ceremony that's obligatory after you become saved. None. God saved you. He did all the work and he'll do a good work in you. Listen to what he says. Abide in him and wait upon him. That wait upon the Lord idea is huge. And Paul's going to, I think, dig into that. All of these good things are things that have to be done. So, um, huh. I always like verses in the Bible that talk about um, things that are off color. And if you want to look at these works, these things that we as humans think are great. In fact, the course of the world says nice people are really good. And even in the course of the world, to be nice is a good thing and it's well accepted, right? But listen to how Paul talks about this in another letter, Philemon 3.8. Doubtless, without a doubt, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything Paul had done in his life was actually a negative except for getting to know Jesus better. Spending time in the word, spending time in prayer, spending time in worship. Everything else is a waste of time. And, and then he finishes his sentence. For whom I've suffered the loss of everything. It, Paul's walk all the way to Roman execution was not one where he gained material worldly things through his life. He actually kept losing things through his life. But he gained Christ, right? And he says, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but dung that I might win Christ. Every work that we can do is worth about as much as a pile of poop, right? So you can do do good works, <laughs> but outside of love, they don't mean anything. Genuine joy in taking care of other people, we do good because we love Jesus, right? I know that was a bad pun. Verse 10. For where is workmanship created in Christ, Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a work. We are not the one to do works. We are the work. Historically, individually, collectively, God's doing a work through his people. Not you, his people, his church, right? Not individual, but collective. God's doing something. Workmanship's a wonderful word. It's poema. It's where we get the word poem. So in the Greek, poema is a work of art, a masterpiece that a master designer and artist has made. So his workmanship has, a, I think our connotation is a little bit more towards like industrial worker, but the Greek connotation would have been towards artist, someone to do a work of art, right? And it's a masterwork that God's doing through his people. You, therefore, as your part in partaking of that church, you're a work of art. You're part of a masterpiece. God's using the, the fallen things of this world to make something eternal, right? He has planned this. He is, he is intentional about this. He's making something that expresses his love. He's prepared it beforehand. He's thought this through with large plans, architectural plans. And he's made this design for which we are going to walk with God and it's going to be beautiful, right? God prepared beforehand. God actually does give us things to do. And his plan and ours has fallen short. We have this mission or calling that we take on when we give up our own plans in life. Because everything I've planned hasn't been what's blessed God. Everything that God introduces to me and I just jump in and do it, that's been a blessing. And it's not only blessed the people around me, and it's blessed me because I learned that I don't have to initiate anything for God to do a work, right? All I have to do is love the Lord. So when we wake up, we walk in his ways, God has prepared opportunities for us to do things, right? So we don't make up our good works. We just say yes, right? And we show up at church and they say, we need somebody to do this. And you just say, yeah, I'll do that. I'll help out. What can I do? And you just abide in that. I think it's interesting that there's kind of this progression here. And I'm just going to give like seven steps to the Christian walk. And I was going to take the time and get verses for each of these, but I, I think for most people listening to this as believers, these are going to, these are pretty much the basics, right? Number one, you yield to God and, and atone. Number two, you confess and forsake your sin and you offer it to God, right? This is all the way back in Leviticus, right? Chapter one and chapter two. Atone for your sin, God does that for you. Now take your sins and trespasses and forsake them and you do that for God. Number three, you study the word. You abide in God. You take a little time every day to get to know your God. You pray, number four, to also abiding in God, right? You listen to God in studying his word and you pray to him by saying by praying. And then, and then I think five, it's important. Everywhere it says to do that, it says to walk in his ways. So you abide in God and then you do what he tells you to do, right? And I think that goes to opportunity or six. If you're doing those two things, opportunities in the kingdom are going to pop up. Abide in him for years, waiting on him. But there will be a point where God has something for you to do that you have been made for. And even the stuff that was dead in sin God can redeem and use for what he's prepared and what he's made his plans. He can turn all things to good. And then I think seven, you build fellowship, right? You exhort one another, you admonish one another, you encourage one another. I love my brothers and sisters in the faith that, that encourage and, and challenge me and, and test me when I'm doing something wrong. They call me out on it, right? 
And then I think rinse and repeat. When you have brothers and sisters of faith and fellowship and you've got things you got to work on, you yield to God. You atone for your sin. You study the word. You pray about it. You do what you've been told. You walk in that faith and then you jump at opportunities that God puts in your path and then fellowship, share those opportunities. And you just keep doing it through your whole life and God reveals himself through that process. It's no mystery, right? God's told us what he wants to do in the word of God, throughout the word of God. These are major themes that are persistent in nearly every book of the Bible, right? Do these things. But we resist them so much, maybe because they're so simple. And we think, well, how can you do something so simple? And then God does an amazing work in your life. For an amazing work to happen, maybe I need to do something to make that happen. No, you don't. Do these things. Abide in God. Walk with him. Wait upon the Lord. The result is a blessed life that has peace that passes any understanding this world has. Joy that's abundant and overflowing. God overflows our cups. God gives us more than what we put in, right? Because we put in nothing. He gives us joy, hope, and love and peace. It's amazing. Really quickly, this idea of walking with God, doing those things, it's the whole point of what Paul's talking about. It's not a new point. Paul doesn't make this up. He's, it, it's echoed throughout the Bible. Let me take you on a real speed walk through the, through the Bible. God asks Abraham to walk before him, Genesis 13.1. God comments, commends Joseph for walking in his ways like Abraham and Isaac. He doesn't mention Jacob. I think that's funny. Genesis 48.15. God's hope for Israel as he builds a nation is that there'll be a people that walk in his laws. Exodus 16, 4, Exodus 18, 20. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, Leviticus 26, 3, I'll walk among you and I'll be your God and you shall be my people. Uh, Leviticus 26, 12, right? Reminds me of the dog in, in the movie Up where he says, I am your dog right? That in some sense, when you have the God of the universe offering that kind of relationship, or you can go watch a stupid TV show, I'm taking the God of the universe. It's not even a, it's not even a rational choice to pick the ways of this world. I'll, if there's a living God and he's alive in people's lives, I kind of want that too. And I'm going to pursue that with everything I got, but it keeps going. God promises life, not death, to those that follow in this path of holiness. Deuteronomy 5.33, Joshua 22.5. Israel takes a shot at it, but they screw it up. They go back and forth. They follow after their nature. They do as they see right in their own eyes. They follow after other gods. They struggle and wrestle with it, just like I do, right? Just like we all do. And then God sends them prophets. And the prophets are telling them, man, you're breaking the covenant. God still loves you. Stop doing this. Blessed are the prophets that come. The prophets promise a new cause. And God will put his spirit in his people. Ezekiel 36, 27. Micah 4, 2. Zechariah 10, 12. Those that love God are blessed. Psalm 119, 1. It's not a new concept what Paul's talking about here. Right? Follow God. It's good. Don't follow God. You're like a zombie. Verse 11, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, you who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in verses 11 through 13, it's almost like Paul's turning to the Gentiles in the crowd and he's talking to them and giving them kind of a version of what's going on, right? The uncircumcision, circumcision is the key defining thing that the Jewish people saw that separated them from the Gentiles. They had a covenant of circumcision and the Gentiles did not. Therefore, there was Jews and there were Gentiles and they were separated. Um, and Paul's just saying to these Gentiles, look, that used to be a thing when there were Jews and Gentiles, but now there's Christ Jesus. And now you're welcomed into the fold. Come on in. So, and the form of verses 11 through 13 is a lot like the form of verses 1 through 10, right? It's things are really, really bad, but now, in the beginning of verse 13, is a lot like the but God that we saw in verse 4. But now, in Christ Jesus, you were once far off been brought near. Christ is going to bring everybody near, all of humanity. I think Paul is really, in some ways, using the same rhetorical scene that we see in Genesis 1, right? I'll walk you through this. God had a plan for people, and Christ was always the plan. Redemption was always the plan. The structural similarity from Genesis 1 that we see here in Ephesians is this story of eternal hope. That God in Genesis 1, 2, the first part, is there was chaos on the earth. There was ruin, emptiness, and void. Very similar to what we saw in verses 1 through 3. There's There's ruin, there's death. It's all bad. And then the second Genesis 1 to the second half of the sentence, and God moves. But God, but God's going to do a thing. And it's amazing. A lot like what we saw in Ephesians 2, 4, right? And then in Genesis, the rest of the chapter, 3 through 31, there's new life that just pops up all over the planet. God's moving. And where God moves, there's new life. And look at the structure of Ephesians, right? It's chaos and ruin, but God, there's new life. And Paul's using a really similar argument structure to what we see in Genesis 1. Not an argument structure, but a logic structure, right? So, in Christ we're brought near. These Gentiles are not hopeless. They rationally can have hope because they're brought near too. And how are they brought near? And I think it's really key at the end of verse 13. It says, by the blood of Christ. Now, to a dead person, that sounds like a weird vampire line, right? It doesn't make any sense to most of the Gentiles that may have first encountered that phrase. And even today, people that grow up in the church kind of just assume that language. But think about it. That's weird language, right? It really only makes sense for the Gentiles to see it through a lens that we see in the Old Testament. Right in the middle of the, the, the Torah, in Leviticus 17, verse 11, it makes a huge argument that blood is sacred, right? Blood represents life. I'll, I'll read it. Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So Paul's using language that you would have, have to have gone to a Paul Old Testament class to even understand. Blood atones for the soul. That in my sin that I'm responsible for, the consequence of sin is death, right? But God says that I can replace my death with the death of another, right? So they have this temporary sacrificial system where they, 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 in the mosaic system, they have animals that every year can take the place of atonement, but it's temporary. And even the Jews knew it was temporary because they did it every year. But when there's an eternal sacrifice that sheds its blood, 
there's an eternal atonement that goes with that. And that's the argument that the resurrection of Jesus makes. I think it's interesting here how Leviticus outlines tons of ways that humans are unclean. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, it's kind of depressing because at some place or another, the Old Testament's going to get you and you're going to look at that passage and say, yeah, I've done that. And you have to admit to something that you've done. And it basically makes the case that under the law, we're accused of something that we've done wrong. And it doesn't matter. Ignorance is no excuse for the law, right? The law is the law regardless of what we think about it. So if God says you can or can't do these things and then we do them, we're guilty. But that's the beginning. I'm sure glad there's a but God. But the blood of Jesus Christ is given as atonement or a covering for those sins. When we're covered, God doesn't even see what's under the cover. He doesn't want to. He says our sins are thrown as far as the east is from the west. They're gone, right? So that Christ, for, him, for he himself, verse 14, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Again, odd language for the Gentile people. The Jewish people knew exactly what this was about. With the reference to sacrificial blood in verse 13, we know Paul is talking about offering systems. There are, in Leviticus 1, it talks about the atonement offering, which he just mentioned, right? There's the, the, there is, in chapter 3, a peace offering that happens. So this becomes a really interesting sentence for the Jewish people. He himself is our peace. Well, wait a second. The peace offering was given at the temple, and then you could have fellowship, and everybody could meet and talk and eat the barbecue, Peace offering was a giant Thanksgiving feast. And Paul's saying that Jesus Christ is that peace for us, right? Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So in the Hebrew, peace is, is the word shalem. Um, and it says here, he is our peace. He didn't make peace. He is peace. In the Greek, the word peace is arana, a state of tranquility that's exempt from rage and war and wrath. It's harmony, concord, and its root word, it comes from a verb. It is peace, is to make peace. So it's an interesting phrasing that Paul uses here because he takes what would be a verb and he turns it into a noun, right? He himself is our peace. In the English, one way to translate this right now is that Jesus pieces us. He reconciles us. He brings harmony to us. Um, it's interesting how Luke started his gospel in 2.14. He says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Same word. So suddenly, when we are sitting in heavenly places, abiding in God and walking in his ways and remembering that we were once sinner, God creates peace, not enmity. He brings peace to us. Because instead of being fearful of a God where we've broken his rules, we realize God loved us enough to provide the, the answer for that. You've broken my rules, but here's your atonement. All you need to do is accept that that's your atonement, right? How many people walking the earth right now resist this idea, right? This is the core resistance point. I don't need atonement is the argument. When I'm dead in my sins and I don't think eternally and I don't think of the consequences of my actions in an eternal sense, I don't need forgiveness. I don't need some mystical God of the universe to forgive me for anything. I'm in great shape. I'm doing fine, right? Until that breaks down because it's spiritually dead, right? It's dianoia, right? It's a complete fabrication that we're okay with, right? The middle wall of separation here is literally the veil in the middle of the temple, 
right? That's one way to look at this. There was a big veil in the middle of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the, from the, from the holy space, right? It separated God from humans, right? There's also another wall that was actually called the wall of separation. By the time we get to Jesus's time in the temple courtyard, there was actually a wall of separation between Gentiles and the court of women out in the courtyard. Not mandated by God. God never asked for that wall of separation. The Jews just threw it up, right? So Paul is likely referring to that wall here too. And it's interesting that he's doing this and talking about this physical wall not being there anymore, but it's also a spiritual wall that's not there anymore, that that wall is literally and figuratively and spiritually gone, right? Here's the better part. <laughs> Paul's actually sitting in his jail cell in Rome right now because he broke that rule. He brought a Gentile onto the other side of the wall of separation, and that's what got the Jewish people so mad at him, is that he had the gall to break the rules of bringing a Gentile into the courtyard of the Jews. So Paul's writing right now about exactly what put him in a jail cell. And you think, what a ridiculous thing to go to jail for. It's even more ridiculous that he's going to be martyred for that, right? The Gentiles and the Jews conspire to kill the Christians, right? And it happens again and again, starting with Jesus. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, it's the enmity's gone through Jesus, and the he we're talking about here is Jesus, Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. There is no conflict anymore between our nature and the peace that we have because Jesus has covered us, right? We may still wrestle with sin, but from Christ's perspective, he's doing a work in us. And as we wrestle with sin and sometimes fail, He's changing us through each round of that. And he's forming us and making us into something that when we put all of us together as a church, we're better than what we were in the flesh. We become something more, right? I love this idea. And here that word peace is used as a verb, thus making peace, peacemaking. And God does that. Christ's flesh killed for all human beings breaches and fulfills the Mosaic law so the guilty can now be saved. Prior to Jesus, the Jewish people hated the Gentiles. The Romans and the Jews didn't get along. And the Romans hated the Jews. They were an annoying little people. But now in Christ, the centurions getting saved, the Pharisees getting saved, the Sadducees getting saved, the, the, the citizens are getting saved all over the place. The tax collector is one of his disciples, right? The zealot is one of his disciples. Jesus just brings all these factions together during his time. And in Christ, there's no difference between them. They're all serving Christ. Instead of serving themselves and the course of this world, they're serving Christ. Instead of serving the human group that they were born into and told that they're a part of, they serve Christ. Instead of doing like, dressing like, and listening to the radio stations they're supposed to be listening to, they're just listening to Christ, right? Instead of watching these shows or seeing these things or acting this way or using these words or being on this social media, man, those disciples were just on Jesus. Instead of Facebook, they were learning the book, right? And that's what they were doing. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting death to enmity. There's no hard feelings. We all serve Jesus. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who were near. For through him, 
we have both access by one spirit to the Father. Have you ever traveled and met a believer where you didn't even speak their language? But there's a welcome and a hospitality and a joy in their eyes. There's a life there that when living people meet living people, you just recognize it. And you're instantly brothers and sisters in the faith because you've left what this world had to offer and you've joined this group of people that are going to serve the living God. It's amazing. You don't even need to speak the same language. It just happens, right? Jesus gives access to this through the cross. Notice here it doesn't say through the resurrection, right? The resurrection proves that Jesus was God because we humans don't raise ourselves from the dead every day, right? Nor does it say through Jesus' teachings, right? And that's how we hear from God what he wants us to do in this new covenant, right? Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses and told us what was next. It doesn't say we're saved through his teachings. It doesn't say we're saved through his resurrection. It says we're saved through the cross, right? And this is where the blood becomes relevant. The salvation actually comes because the sacrifice for my sins was given and it was given on the cross, right? The rest validates us and help us, helps us know what it means. And frankly, the power of God resurrecting Jesus from the cross is, is a part of this whole narrative where we actually had an eternal being give that sacrifice, but the sacrifice is what saves us. The blood is what gives us that peace with God. We know we're atoned for. Sometimes Christians get saved and that idea that we're atoned for takes years to bake in. We still feel guilty for things, right? Because we know we did things wrong. We may even still try to make up for those things on our own. But at the end of the day, the only thing that makes up for our sin is Jesus' blood. And you just have to accept the gift. Yeah, I did wrong things and I'm sure glad that Christ atones for me on those things. Maybe I said something horrible. Make amends for that as much as you can. But at the end of the day, the only thing that makes amends with the God of the universe is Jesus' blood atoning for you. Not ignoring the sin, but covering it. Jesus then is teaching the Gentiles here that the shedding of blood, life for life, was for them too. And the concept that's buried into this is the same context we see back in Leviticus. Again, I'm teaching through Leviticus on Sunday night, so I'm seeing a lot of connections. Leviticus 16:15 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle a meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. While they were unclean, God will do a sacrifice, a single animal will atone for all the sins of the children of Israel, right? That's the law. That's the rule. And Paul's basically saying that one shedding of blood by Jesus on the cross, that atones for all of your sins across the planet for all time in the midst of your uncleanness. Paul's naming Jesus as the blood sacrifice of atonement, trespass, sin, and peace all at the same time. He is the offering, and there's no division there. Which should beg the question to any dead person, are you dead in your transgressions? Are you just numb to the idea that what you're doing may or may not be following God, right? Are you accepting that, but you're still trying to do good works? Because that's a dead end too. Stop trying to do anything. You're all the same under Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do in the kingdom or how you do it in the kingdom. We're all the same. We all get the same ranking, right? We're followers of Jesus. We're children of God. And we're cleansed from the sin, right? So follow this logic. 
Jew and Gentile, you're all the same. When you get that Jesus is your high priest that makes atonement for you, then you're cleansed from your sin. You can rest in that. Remember you were once lost, but now you're found, right? You're supposed to remember that, verse 1. Sounds a lot like the New Testament, but listen to this. It's in the Old Testament too. It's the same God. It's the same thing. Leviticus 16, 29, this shall be a statute forever for you. You shall afflict your souls, do no work at all. Whether a native in your own country, Gentile, or a stranger or a Jew or a stranger who dwells among you, Gentile, for on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you and cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It's a Sabbath of rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It's a statute forever. Think of that. Look at how much symmetry there is between Paul and Leviticus, right? The goal isn't that you're saved, now go do things. It's you should rest in the Lord. In fact, this idea that you shall do no, no work at all in Leviticus, that's literal. And Paul's saying it's spiritual too. You don't do the work of salvation. God does all the work. It's just accept it. You're cleansed. You're holy. There's no guilt. You've done nothing that God's going to hold against you. If you believe in the Lord Christ, you shall be saved. Paul knew his Old Testament. He's calling on it. It's foundational to what he's thinking. And it's exactly what he's explaining to the Gentiles and the Jews in Ephesus is what he's trying to teach them the Old Testament here. This is the practice. This is the, the, the program. So you got two groups of people, both of which aren't, are following the course of this world. Some of them are pride-filled, self-righteous, Jewish, pharisaical, holier-than-thou, religious, working-in-the-temple people that are aghast at anything that anyone does wrong or breaks the law. They're religious jerks. And we still have some of those around, right? Then you have a second group of people. They don't care about God. They're wandering aimlessly in their sin, following whichever Greek or Roman God that makes them happy that day, right? They're doing what's right in their own eyes. They're finding their inner me. And they're, they're basically living them for themselves, doing whatever they want to do with their life. They're selfish jerks. So you have self-righteous jerks and you have selfish jerks, both of which are well on their way to being disconnected from God for all of eternity. Good luck with that. And Paul says there's a third option. You can just be a jerk that's forgiven. You can be a Christian. You can reject your selfishness. You can reject the idea that it's your job to tell other people how to be holy. And you can just seek out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You can come before the Almighty God and say, I love you. I want to be like you. Help me to just rest in you. And boy, if there's any opportunities to serve God, just make sure you let me know what they are and I will jump at them. But in the meantime, I'm going to read your word. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship. I'm going to go fellowship with the saints whenever I can. Verse 19, now starting a new idea. Therefore, starting a conclusive idea. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers or foreigners. Gentiles, you're not outside the club anymore. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Even better, you're not just part of the club, you're part of the leadership of the club. You're the child of the head of the club, right? When there's that kind of offering, then it's time to get to church, right? It's time to get to a church where people worship, pray, and fellowship, and they stick to the word of God. Be in that community. It may not be flashy. It doesn't have a movie trailer that goes with it, though some churches are doing that now. Um, but any rational or sane person would pick that 
over aimlessness. And that's what Paul's saying is the setup. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Likely in context, Paul's talking about not the prophets of the Old Testament here, but the disciples and prophets that they were witnessing in the early church, right? The disciples and those prophets are laying a new foundation or a new rev part of the progressive revelation of God where God's showing the path to get to him. The idea of corner cornerstone is a really interesting idea. No matter how you size it up, historically speaking, a cornerstone could be the corner of the building that you lay at the ground in the corner. And we do that in a lot of old buildings in America. We still have cornerstones and they're laid and that's where you engrave the name of the person who made it, the year it was made. You put it all on the cornerstone It's a, a, and it, something's engraved on it. So maybe with Jesus, it was holiness to the Lord was engraved on that cornerstone. The other way you could interpret cornerstone there is keystone or the tip of the angle. So in these big stone walls that they had back then, they'd have these doorways that had peaks. And, and at that peak, you'd have to put a cornerstone right in the middle that was strong enough and thick enough, big piece of granite, so that all that weight that would tip into it from the wall, because not just the doorway, all the weight of that big wall would sit on that cornerstone. It was essential and it held it all together. And that's likely what Paul's referring to here because he talks about the disciples and the, the prophets being foundational or underneath that cornerstone that holds them all together. Another way, some people interpret this as like a capstone, which would, on top of angled walls, you'd take two big stone walls and you'd fill them with dirt. And then you'd have stones in the middle that would keep those walls from caving in on each other, but they would lean on each other. It's basically how you build a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid, you put a big stone that they would cover with gold. And the whole idea is everything leaned into that stone. Everything depended on that stone. And that stone was the place where all the attention went, right? Any of those three stones means that Jesus is at the middle of all of it. And I think that meaning comes through pretty loud and clear. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple. So all the Christians, all of us, uh, we're just parts of a building. And this is part of what we give up. When we're dead in our sin, we think it's all about us. When you become alive in Christ, it's not about, all about us at all. The glory goes to God. We're just tools, right? And the number of people it takes to encourage and, and put anything together in the kingdom uh, requires teams of people and groups of people, right? People that gather together and make it all happen. People who, who understand how to teach and how to love and how to encourage and how to admonish, how to do technical, tech, technical stuff. People that like to just see a clean room and help with cleaning, right? People that do all of these kinds of things. The whole building being fitted together grows. The church, therefore, is not just a building designed by God part by part. It's also something that grows. It's alive. It has life. And God adds to the numbers and he saves people from death and he puts them into this church that's kind of growing and changing. The church is a temple. There are priests in a temple, right? It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There are roles to play and Peter calls us a holy priesthood. We are here to be folks that can serve other people, to give our lives to service. Verse 22, and it just kind of wraps with this thought. What a great chapter in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God and the Holy Spirit. Boy, here's the bonus system. Not only are you saved by grace, 
Not only is Jesus in the middle of it with a plan, you're part of a building. God's fitting you together with other people. He's putting you into this community. Not only that, you're going to have the Holy Spirit of God dwell in you together as a people, right? And again, this is kind of against American Christianity where we think the Holy Spirit just tackles individuals, right? And slays them in the spirit, right? That's not what I read here. I read here in him in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. God dwells in his people as they love one another. The only thing redeeming about me is how I love other people, right? The only thing worth anything is what I give to God. And God uses that in such a way where people can see believers loving and caring for one another. Think of how amazing it's been to see the people of God finding ways to love one another even when they're physically not able to be in the same room. It's a stunning kind of thing. A nice promotion for believers, right? Suddenly you get God the in the form of Jesus bringing you into atonement, God the Father giving you grace, and the Holy Spirit abiding in you, giving you comfort and friendship and kindness. This last thought unites the church as we are being built. We are not built, right? We're in process people. This is wonderful. I'm going to read a little passage from Adam Clark as quoted by Dave Gusick. There's nothing as noble as the church seeing that it's the temple of God. There's nothing so worthy of reverence seeing God dwells inside of it. There's nothing so ancient since the patriarchs and prophets worked to build it. There's nothing so solid since Christ is the foundation, the cornerstone of it. There's nothing so high since it reaches as high as heavenly places where Jesus sits. There's nothing nothing so perfect and well-proportioned since God designed it and the Holy Spirit is its architect. There's nothing more beautiful because it's adorned with building stones from every age of humanity, every place, every people, from the highest of kings to the lowest of schmucks like me. And it's the most brilliant place that people can gather. There's nothing more spacious than the church since it's spread over the whole earth and will fulfill, will fill the heavens. It takes in all who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There's nothing so divine since it's a living building animated and inhabited by the Holy Spirit. You want to be close to God, go to church. If you can't go to church, you can still spiritually be blessing people, praying for people, serving people, or you can stay dead right? That, that's an option and we shouldn't take away that option. So you can have the living church of God or you can go watch more Netflix, right? And see if that gives you life. Could be a great show. You never know, right? Or, you know, I won't pick on Netflix. They might sue me or something like that. But you have the living, a, a mighty work of God through the church, watching yourself grow and be built with other people and the gems around you in the church and these people you respect and you root for and you pray for and you love them or you can go to the next sporting event without mentioning any, any proprietary names, right? Or you can go to your next trivia night at the bar, right? These are your options in life, right? Picking the people of God and studying his word. And if you're listening to this, I'm preaching to the choir, you're studying his word with me. And I just love that. And we get to do this together. Um, and I can't think of anything this world has to offer that I'd rather be doing than hanging out with you in person and not digitally, right? So we're members of the church that Jesus started, God's building it, and the Holy Spirit fills it up. And that's life. That's the thing you get.
he made you alive who were in, dead in trespasses and sin. Verse 1. Ephesians is going to go on, and now that he's made us alive, what we're going to see in the next chapter is how to continue to walk in that and what to do in that space and how to live that life of Christ. So we'll be back next week with Ephesians 3. If this was a blessing to you, uh, subscribe to it. Go to allin.gospel.com and you can clip it, share the link with your friends, subscribe to it. Uh, really, we're just studying the Word. So if you know anybody where this is, if this has been a blessing to you, just please share it. Uh, that really helps doing what we're doing and how we're doing it. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for tonight. I just thank you for anyone that would want to take an hour of their life and study the Word. I just pray that you bless them. May the Word of God reside in their heart. May they ask questions about their eternal salvation. May they be atoned for. May they reach out and seek you out and just say, Lord, I want to be with you. I want to be in your church with your people more than I want any of this crap that the world has offered me. Lord, I just, it's all dung. It's all a heap of it. And Lord, as soon as we wake up to that, it's our first step towards life in you. Uh, and Lord, I just know from my own experience, everything the world put in front of me, it wasn't worth anything. So Lord, I just pray for anyone that might be hearing this, that they reach out to you, they seek out the believers, Lord, they get in your word, they pray, and they do what you tell them to do, and they just walk in your ways. And they don't try to do anything else than do that. Um, Lord, I just pray for them. I pray you bless those people, and I pray you bless us. Be with us this week. Help us to find ways to connect to people, even though we're not supposed to. We're supposed to keep our social distance. But may our spiritual distance be non-existence, and may we be spiritually close while we're physically apart. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it post it on your social media.